Anyway, I think it's a great picture. It, it captures the theme of what we're trying to do. We're trying to show how each of the puzzles of the Bible fit together to form the, the big picture. And so just think about how you, how you solve jigsaw puzzles. I trust that most all of you have worked on jigsaw puzzles before in the past. I know this is what I've done. You take all the, all the puzzle pieces and you, you dump them out on your table or whatever you're going to do and then you, you take your box right and you kind of prop it up right there. And then you go about flipping all of your pieces on the upper side so you can see what's going on. And then you don't really look for the edge pieces because they're pretty easy because one of the lines are straight and so you work those, kind of get, get those done. And then what you do is you kind of group similar pieces together, right? And then uh, sometimes when there's a piece you don't know exactly what it is, what do you do with that piece? <laughs> Phil throws it away, okay? <laughs> I know you often take that piece and then you look at the box and you say, oh, well, this, this could be this here or maybe this could be this down here or maybe, you know, you just kind of try to figure it out and you, and you weigh it against the big picture, right, that you've got that's just kind of sitting up there that you're trying to aim at. Well, so likewise, our series is trying to do that, trying to give you a, a big picture of the Bible. So when you have something, you kind of maybe maybe pick it up and kind of put it here. It's okay, where does, where does this kind of fit in the whole story of the Bible? And hopefully it will all fit together for you. Our big picture, we have the redemptive storyline of the Bible. We've picked it up in four words. What are the words? Let's say them all together. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? They're just right there. You guys are good readers. That's wonderful. Uh, just a story about how God created the world. Through sin, we have fallen. God has brought a Redeemer in Christ, and He will restore the world to a better state than it ever was to begin with. It's a story of our lives as believers in Christ as well, right? God has created us for His glory. But Romans 3.23 says we've fallen short of His glory because we have all sinned. And Christ has come to redeem you from your sin and someday to take you into a better state than you are right now. The big picture of the Bible is the big picture of our lives as well. Now, there are limitations for sure to this big picture. I mean, I think about it, I promoted this a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, and I just, I would as well, just uh, parents, this would be a great thing for you to have for your, for your family. I know we're going through this with Kids Club uh, right now, but it's the big picture. I think maybe 14 lessons. You can probably read through the thing in an hour you want to, uh, Kids Club, we're just reading through maybe one section each, each time we meet together. It just gives a broad picture of what's happening in the Bible. Uh, might be a good Christmas gift maybe to give to your kids this year. Maybe a good Christmas gift for you as well. So you just look at, at God's plan. But just as, if there, just as there are limitations in a, a kid's study Bible or in a big picture story Bible, so also are there limitations just in trying to reduce the whole of the Bible down to these four words. Like these four words mention nothing about the people of Israel or the church. There's nothing about the giving of the law or the role of priests or the sacrificial systems. There's no geography, no mention of any of the prophets or the kings. And it um, even gives you the sense maybe that, that before the redemption there was no hope, as if there was the, the creation and then the fall, and then there's like zero hope, and then, ooh, pops the Redeemer on the scene, and then the restoration. It's not it at all, because even the, the day of the fall came some hope as well of the restoration coming. But it, it, it gives you some help. And these four words, also I think one difficulty here is that they only trace one trajectory of, of biblical history. That is the people of God who will enjoy the restoration. There are those who have rejected Christ who will spend eternity in hell. And this is just kind of like one path of the world. And yet there's another path that people are going down who haven't embraced the Savior. But at least with these four words, it gives you a fighting shot in the redemption storyline of the Bible. And that's what I want us to have four sermons, four Sundays this Advent season. And today it's actually very appropriate for us this Christmas season. My message this morning is a third word. Word. We've done creation two weeks ago. Last week we did fall. And this morning we are doing redemption. We're going to hear the story of Jesus. How God created the world. Very good. We messed it up. But we need a Redeemer to come and restore and clean up the mess. His name is Jesus. Now again, this morning my text is broad. I mean, normally we are going through books of the Bible. We're going to start in January going through Mark verse by verse. Um, 
But last week, I preached basically all the Old Testament. We talked about the fall from Genesis 3 all the way up through Malachi chapter 4. And that was about... Kids, you remember how many pages were last week? Some of the kids might remember this. About 800. Very good. And this week, I've got about 230 in the New Testament to, to work through. So it's not quite as much, but still our task is daunting. There's no way we could read everything. But what I'm trying to do is, is just preach the broad scope of the thrust of the message of the New Testament. And my aim this morning is to do what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch when he preached Jesus to him. That's what I want to do. I want to preach Jesus to you because He's the one who brought redemption into the world. And we're going to start right here at the beginning of the New Testament. So turn with me in your Bibles if you have them. If you didn't bring one, you can pick one from the pew. Matthew <clears throat> chapter 1. The very first verse, the very first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> and like last week, we're going to spend a good portion of our time here in Matthew 1, some in 2, some in 3, some in 4. And then we're going to pick up some speed as we we're going to hit Mark, we're going to hit um, Luke, we're going to hit some in Acts, and then, and then get a little bit of the epistles, and finally we're going to end in Revelation. So we'll, we'll start slow here and ramp up some speed, and then we'll, we'll get going. But right here, when you get to Matthew chapter 1, you see we begin with the genealogy. It says, "...the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah..." The son of David, the son of Abraham. And right there we have an outline of the genealogy. It begins with Abraham. And if you look there in verse 2, right there it goes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So it goes right there from Abraham. And it continues right on down through David, who is mentioned there in verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David the father of... Solomon by Bathsheba, who had also been the wife of Uriah. And then it just follows the kings of Judah right on town to the deportation of, to Babylon in verse 12. And then the genealogy continues right down to Jesus. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is also called the Messiah. The effect here is that... Uh, we're brought right back to the flow of the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament doesn't just stand on its own. The New Testament stands upon the foundation of the Old Testament. And even right here, right at the beginning of the New Testament, with this genealogy, it says we, we can't even begin unless we begin back in Old Testament history. And that's what it does. And I think last week as I spoke about the Old Testament history, how we were anticipating this day of the coming of Christ ever since the fall. Though Adam's sin brought us into trouble, we see that something dreadfully is wrong in the world. And throughout the Old Testament, we just see human failure after failure after failure after failure after failure, whether the priests, Nadab and Abihu, failed in their priestly duties, offering up strange incense on the altar. Or the judges like Eli, who didn't discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were irresponsible in their office. Whether like many of the kings, like Jeroboam or Manasseh, they were evil and wicked, or like the multiple generations of Israel, it just seemed to spiral downward and there was, there was no gleaning hope really out of here. There's going to be a deliverer. Oh, there were righteous men like Joseph and Job, for sure, coming out of here. But in general, people were not walking with the Lord. There's disharmony between God and His creation that needed to be restored. We needed someone to come and fix and restore that. And His name was the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one or the, the one who's going to come and save. Sometimes sports teams have that. Oh, this guy's going to be our Messiah. He's going to take us to the championship game. And so likewise, it's a, what is here? It's Jesus is the Messiah, the, the one who's, who's really going to come to save or, or come to redeem, those essentially synonyms, or come to restore us, or come to ransom us, or come to, come to fix it all. And that's what Christ is going to do. He is called the Messiah there in verse 17. In 16... And verse 17 as well. Well, then we go right into the story of Christmas. It's the story of birth of Jesus. Let's read in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, but... When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There it is. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. That's the whole purpose of why Jesus came. He came as the Messiah to save people from their sins. Right? That's the redemption. Jesus came to redeem. He came to save people from their sins. He came to rescue us from the damaging effects of the fall. He came to fix everything. It's in line with the anticipation of the whole Old Testament. It was waiting for this Messiah to come. Eagerly waiting. And that's the story we get here in verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, or Im with, Anu us, El God. With us is God. Emmanuel is right there with us. What was promised long ago is that God would come and dwell among His people. It's promised long ago that, that God would come and rescue us from our peril. And that's why Jesus came to earth. He came to save us from our sins. Now, this is Christmas time. Christmas carols everywhere you go. You step into a store and you'll probably hear the, the Christmas carol singing. Um, you know, just trying to get us in that holiday spirit so we maybe buy more or, or whatever. And some of these Christmas carols focus on the mythology of our Christmas traditions like Rudolph and Frosty and Santa Claus. Many of them focus though upon the, the birth of Christ, the King in Bethlehem. And there are actually quite a few then that even go to interpret this birth of the King. They give the purpose of why Jesus came. They give, if you will, the big picture of the Bible's storyline. They speak about the theme of how Jesus came to save us and redeem us and deliver us and rescue us from the fall and the curses that came with us. So just consider some of these hymns. Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Jesus is coming to set your people free. Born thy people to deliver. Jesus has come to deliver us. He's come as our Redeemer. Or, or this one. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and, can you finish it? And ransom captive Israel. Israel that was fallen, that is in the bonds of sin. Come, Emmanuel, and ransom the captives and set them free by your blood. O little town of Bethlehem, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Can you pick it up? I hear it? Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Here's the child. Come on. Come to us. And then cast out our sin and enter into us. Be born in us today. Bethlehem, figuratively, coming and cleansing that little town. How about this? Go tell it on the mountain. Down in a lowly manger, the humble Christ was born and... What do we got? And brought us God's salvation, that blessed Christmas morn. Right? Let's, let's go tell this on the, on the mountain. That down in this lonely manger was where the Christ was born. And He brought us God's salvation that blessed Christmas morn. He came and He redeemed us. He brought us the redemption that Christmas morn. About how great our joy. There shall the child lie in the stall. This child who shall redeem us all. Here's the little child who's going to come and redeem us all. Same word. Joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Right? I mean, even there, it takes us back to the fall. Let no more sin and sorrow grow. No more let thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curses is found. By the way, that's really not a Christmas hymn. 
that's really a hymn for the restoration when everything in the curse is totally gone. Psalm 92, I believe, Isaac Watts talking about the, the future state, the perfect state when all is restored perfectly. How about this? Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Peace, peace. Jesus Christ was born to save. You don't need to fear death which come about through the fall, but Jesus Christ has been born to save us from that. How about this? Silent night. Holy night. Son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from Thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. There it is. It's the silent night. That's the dawning when Jesus came as a child. It's just the, the dawn, the starting of redeeming grace coming to us when we be redeemed. How about this one? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth. Everybody's got to get this one, okay? Peace on earth and mercy mild. Amen. That's talking about the redemption. God and sinners reconciled. Where the fall created a disharmony between us, in Christ's birth now there can be harmony formed. Reconciliation. Mild delays is glory by born that man no more may die. Solving the problem of the fall. He's born so that we may die no more. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. He's the Savior who's come. The one who's going to come and save. Long lay the world in sin and error pining because of the fall. The world lay long in this sin and error pining until He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Just talking about a hope stirring within us because that holy night when Christ was born, there's, there's hope there for us. And so I just encourage you as you think this Christmas season, you hear these hymns, think about the big picture, the purpose behind Jesus coming because He came to save us from our sins and really reverse the curse of the fall. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He should be called Jesus, Yeshua, for He will save His people from their sins. This is what the entire Old Testament was anticipating. In fact, we'll just zip through Matthew chapter 2 here as we pick up some speed to go through the New Testament. By the way, we're just going to turn forward. So if you just, you just keep turning forward is where we're going to go. But Matthew chapter 2, consider the Old Testament quotes in fulfillment, finding it in Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1, talking about the place of His birth. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship Him. And even you see there the anticipation about these Magi, probably eastern mystics someplace, or maybe they're Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism. Maybe it's the religion they're coming from. They're reading the stars. They're knowing something about the, the Scriptures. Maybe that Daniel brought over in captivity. They, they know something's going on. They found the star and they know there's this dawning of some kind of king. They're coming to worship him. And, and so Herod heard this. <clears throat> he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired, where's the Messiah to be born? Where, where's the Savior? Where's this Redeemer? And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Of course, the Jews all knew Micah 5 too, that it talked about Messiah would be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem, just as Micah chapter 5 verse 2 prophesied. It's prophesied the Messiah coming, and sure enough, it came to pass. And then Mary and Joseph because the danger of Herod when he slaughtered all these babies were in trouble, they went to Egypt. And that's in fulfillment of chapter 2, verse 15. He remained in Egypt, Jesus, until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So Jesus came out of Egypt, just like the historic Israel came out of Egypt as well in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Or the mere fact that He was grew up in Nazareth, north, in the northern country. 
was a fulfillment of what the prophet said. Verse 23, And it came and lived in the city called Nazareth, and this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He should be called a Nazarene. And then we see another fulfillment in chapter 3 about John the Baptist. We see that several Old Testament passages talk about before Messiah comes, there's going to be a forerunner to Him who's going to point the way and say, here is the Messiah coming. Isaiah chapter 40, Malachi chapter 3, both quote this similar idea. Chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John the Baptist was supposed to come and identify and make the path smooth it out for Jesus' coming. And he did that with his baptism of repentance. was baptizing people in the Jordan River, just getting ready for the Messiah to come. And he's the one that said, Hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God who has come to redeem us. That's where he was. And of all these references, Matthew 1, 2, and 3, we see that Jesus didn't merely just poof out of nowhere. It's, it's not without context that Jesus comes on the scene. He comes on the scene in space-time history. He comes on the scene prophesied by the Old Testament and anticipated in many ways by the fall to solve the problem. He was the prophet that Moses spoke about. He was the priest that Melchizedek foreshadowed. And he was the king that would sit on the Davidic throne forever. He's coming out of the Old Testament. Of the Old Testament. That's some sense the point of my sermon series here is I want you to catch the Bible's telling the story. It's a story from the creation of the world to the consummation of the world. From what God did and how we've messed it up and all the different ways that men have tried to be right with God and really only one way Jesus Christ can make it right with God. So we can see here how Jesus fits in. Now Jesus lived a good life. He lived a perfect life, in fact. Several things characterize His ministry. They're summarized well in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. It's where His ministry primarily was in the north in Galilee, not so much in Jerusalem, though He did come down there a few times. Eventually came down there before He was killed. But He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel in, of the Kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. You see Him teaching and you see Him healing. That's what the ministry of Jesus was about. It was a teaching ministry. It was a healing ministry. His teaching ministry was about the kingdom of heaven. He said that in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the kingdom of heaven was at hand because Jesus was there. The king was there. John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is there. That was his theme. In fact, even some of his teaching, we see the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which just exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, teach about what true righteousness is within the kingdom of God. And, and throughout Matthew and throughout, we see lots of teaching of Jesus. And we get a lot of, of details of his miracles, too. Like in Matthew chapter 8, if you just kind of look there at the titles, we see that Jesus cleanses a leper, the, the one who was despised from society, had a skin problem was healed and so he could come back into society. The centurion's servant was paralyzed and tormented and Jesus said the word and he was healed. Down in verse 14, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a fever and he just cast the fever right out of her. Or, or the demons that Jesus cast out in verse 28 beginning there when they said that we are legion, we are many demons. And he cast them out. Or chapter 9, the, the paralytic was brought before Him, coming down from the roof. And Jesus forgives his sin and then also calls Him to get up and walk. These are the healings that, that He did and more and more. We just see that through all, all, all the Scriptures. You see, you see Jesus teaching and you see Him healing. And both these things then angered the Pharisees who conspired against Him to kill Him. But that wasn't out of God's plan either. That was anticipated as well. So turn over to Mark chapter 8. We're starting to pick up some speed here, because the, the theme and the point of Jesus' life wasn't so much about His life as it was about His death. Now, his, his life provided the foundation for His death, but it was the death where everything culminated and it all made sense, if you will. But Mark chapter 8, it's really the, the turning point in the life of Christ. And we go through the Gospel of Mark we will know this passage right here really well because it's right on the hinge of where everything turns. And Up until this point, he's talking about who Jesus is and then we get this climax and then it's going to say what Jesus has done. Maybe give you a little bit of a theme 
of Mark, who Jesus is, what he's done. I've got some better words for that. I'm working through those still as well. But Mark chapter 8, verse 27. He was uh, retreating up north, this up north of Galilee, even Caesarea Philippi, away from the crowds probably, just he and his disciples. We can discern that here. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Kind of a way. And then he says, on the way he questioned his disciples saying, who do people say that I am? It's a good question. They told him, some said John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And Jesus continued questioning them. Here's the great question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about Him. We've identified who Jesus is, and then from this point on, we're going to see what Jesus will do. But the identity of Jesus is is beheld. He is the Messiah. He's the Deliverer of Israel. He's the one who's going to restore and redeem Now, one of the the themes that you're going to get out of this through the Scriptures is that when Jesus talked about redeeming Israel, He he was talking about a little bit different than the disciples. The disciples thought political deliverance from the Roman oppression. And Jesus was thinking about spiritual deliverance from the oppression of Satan and sin, which is actually a bigger, greater, longer-lasting redemption. Jesus wasn't going to be the Redeemer to overthrow the Romans like all the other judges were. Jesus was going to be a a redeemer along the lines of Isaiah 53. He's going to be the suffering servant to to carry our griefs and our sorrows. He's going to be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He's going to be the guilt offering for our sin. And it's through His death that He's going to establish His kingdom and restore all things to their rightful place. In verse 31, He begins to show this to them and it rubs, rubs Peter a little bit wrong. That's why you need to figure out what Jesus is going to do through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man... Notice there, He began to teach them. This is for the first time He's talking about this. The Son of Man, Jesus Himself, He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, Peter's eyes were opened a little bit to see Jesus is the Messiah, but... He didn't understand what Messiah meant. He was still fuzzy here a little bit. And even though verse 32 says that Jesus was stating the matter plainly, and Peter was understanding what he's saying, Peter was missing it a little bit. He took him aside, at verse 32 says, and rebuked him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. It wasn't clear in Peter's eyes what exactly was was happening. He wasn't going to rule and reign and overthrow Caesar with a large military push. His plans are different. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed there. And after his death, he's going to rise again and that's going to be the dawn of the age of redemption. And Jesus teaches them several times. Turn over to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And there they went out. Jesus and His disciples began to go through Galilee and He did not want anyone to know about it. And He was teaching His disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. Verse 32, but they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask Him. So, He's stating it clearly, but they're not quite understanding. That's okay. It continues to go. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, walking up to Jerusalem. Jesus walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. He said, okay, here's the plan. We're going to Jerusalem. And behold, as we go up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and they will spit on Him and they will scourge Him and they will kill Him. And three days later, He will rise again. The response shows they still don't understand it. James and John, sons of Zebedee, come, want to be great in the kingdom. And Jesus then sets it all straight here in verse 32. He says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even 
The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is a mission statement of Jesus' life, if you will. Jesus existed. Rock Valley Bible Church, right? Our theme statement. We exist, right? To enjoy His grace and to, what? Extend His glory. So likewise, Jesus here. He exists not to serve, but to give His life as a ransom for many. This is what Jesus was doing. He came to serve. He came to serve by giving His life in death. And by dying, here's the great thing, by dying He purchased our life for us. We were held captive because of our sin, but Jesus would come and ransom us or redeem us. He'd buy us back is the idea here. And that was the path of true greatness. Not looking out of His own interests and lording it over for His own aggrandizement. Rather, He put Himself under us, looking out for our interests and giving Himself for us to help us. That's what Jesus did. And that's exactly what happened. He did go up to Jerusalem. He was betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They did flog Him and scourge Him and whip Him and hand Him over to be crucified. So let's pick up the crucifixion account in Mark chapter 15. So we trace to the story of Jesus. Beginning in verse 33 is where we're coming. He was nailed to this cross, lifted up to die of suffocation, which I've told you on many occasions like drowning slowly. You're about to drown and you get another gasp of, of air. A painful death. Like the most painful death they could Invents Romans were prohibited from this. Only non-Romans, non-Roman criminals. Jesus was there. The sixth hour came. That's noon. The day started at six o'clock in the morning. And when noon came, high noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Something terrible was happening upon the earth during that time. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is Aramaic. Translate the Aramaic and it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the reality of what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ is God the Father was forsaking Jesus the Son. Now, there may be particular times and circumstances in your life when you think, wow, God's forsaking me now. You may be something, some, some trial maybe you're having or you've had that you think that, boy, things are going really bad for us now. But rest assured, God has not forsaken you. If you're a believer and truster in Christ, He's not abandoning you. What you're experiencing is not what Jesus experienced right here. Because for those who love Christ, there's a promise. Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to His purpose. He causes all things to work together for good. And it may look like God has left us. It may be the reality that we're facing a disciplining hand for our sin. But discipline is always for our good, right? Or it may be that we are bringing fruit and God is pruning us for greater effectiveness. John 15, verse 2. Those who bear fruit, He prunes so they may bear more fruit. So whatever the circumstances, whether it's a disciplining hand or whether it's a pruning hand to bear more fruit, God never forsakes us like He forsook Jesus at this moment. At this moment in time, Right here, in verse 34, we see God the Father turning away from God the Son. Check it out. God was forsaking God. The Father was punishing the Son. The wrath was coming upon the Son. Here, catch this out. For our sin. Jesus was ransoming us. Mark 10.45 He was redeeming us. He was paying the punishment that our sin deserved and thereby lifting the curse for us that took place in the garden and instead giving us blessing instead of a curse. Forgiving us our sin. Creating new hearts within us. Adopting us to be His children. And that's the story of redemption. That's the story of Jesus. And I just say, this story is so wonderful, it's hard to believe. And the disciples didn't believe it as well. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. We're picking up after His crucifixion. After His resurrection. we got these two men on the road to Emmaus. 
And, and this takes place after his resurrection and they're confused and they're disappointed and they're downcast because they don't, don't quite know and understand what, what took place. Verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very, very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus Himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him. And He said to them, What, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? <laughs> and they stood still, looking sad. So they were walking, and then since Jesus said that, they stopped and they looked at Him, astounded in some regard. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to Him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? And unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And Jesus, playing along, said, What things? It's a God question. And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a, a prophet, mighty indeed, and word. There you see his ministry, his healing indeed ministry, his healing his teaching ministry in the word. Mighty indeed and in word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to the sentence of death and crucified Him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. The blinders, He did redeem Israel. But they were hoping for a different deliverance. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find His body, they came they had also seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found exactly as these women had said, but Him they did not see. And so they're trying to put all these things together. And, and you think about everything that they had, had known. And Jesus had told them at least three times that we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, they're going to crucify him, he's going to be dead, but he's going to rise again. And apparently that last part, the rise again, they didn't get. They didn't understand. They didn't embrace. Matthew and Mark record three instances in which this happened. Maybe more times Jesus probably spoke to them and told them. But as Jesus said here, their hearts were slow to believe. Look what he says, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And then, I love this, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. That was one sermon, right? Maybe an hour. I don't know how long. Maybe, maybe half an hour. He's taken all the Bible and, and preaching and showing the theme of how they all point to Christ. That uh, wasn't quite my purpose in teaching the Old Testament last week, but, but it's similar. Just, just showing how it's important for the Christ to suffer and to die. In some regard, I think they were focused too narrowly on their, their own vision of their own plans, their own problems. Because what was their problem? Roman rule was their problem. And they didn't see, catch this, they didn't see the big picture of what their bigger problem was. Their bigger problem was that they were fallen sinners in need of saving grace from a Savior. And so Jesus took the Old Testament, showed them how they spoke of Him, and showed them how, yes, God created the, land, the, the, um, the world good, and yet we fell, but there was a promise there. Remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And through the Old Testament, you can see this hope about Moses said there's going to raise up a prophet like me. David said there's going to be one on the seed of David who's going to last forever. Melchizedek all teaches about a better priest is going to come. And all these themes would have been through there. And there was, there was a hope, actually, that was a much bigger hope than merely redeeming them from Roman tyranny. Think if they had been delivered from Roman tyranny, what would have happened after Jesus left? If the pattern of the judges hold true, there would have been belief and gone on pretty well when Jesus was alive. But after Jesus went off the scene, the Jews would have returned into their rebellious ways and, and then God would have forsaken them. They would have been over someone else. Maybe after the, the Romans, right? After, well, who knows who's going to come and 
and rule over them then. But they didn't realize there was a, a bigger problem that's a spiritual problem. And the Redeemer was not a physical Redeemer, but a spiritual Redeemer, which is a much bigger Redeemer, which gives them much better hope, gives an eternal hope, rather than just a temporary hope that a physical Redeemer would have been. And in fact, we see, as we'll, we'll see here a little bit later, that Jesus was the spiritual Savior of Israel, saving them from their sins, but He's also the Savior of the Gentiles as well, because His his, his call goes out to all the nations. Jesus is the Redeemer for all who believe in Him. And it's way bigger than they were even thinking. They didn't even see that picture. And the problem was they were slow of heart to believe. Now I say this because if we turn over to Luke chapter 24, looking at verse 44, Jesus, before He sends to heaven, gives the final directions. This is the, the Great Commission. Preach and proclaim this message of forgiveness to all the nations. Verse 44, Now He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then, notice who's sovereign over the minds, and then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That Jesus did that. So now they could see and understand. And then He said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer. Isaiah 53, you can read all about that. And rise again. Psalm 16, you can read all about that. And that the, and from the dead on the third day. And that, here it is, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Talking about the day of, of Pentecost. Now, with open minds, verse 45, the disciples did the very thing that Jesus told them to do. They went and proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jerusalem first. And then it went to Judea. Then it went to Samaria. Then it went to Antioch and Asia Minor and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And even Paul it went to Rome and Paul was hoping even to go on to Spain to preach Christ wherever Christ wasn't named. This is far bigger than just a little Israel. This is going out and the gospel spreading and eventually it's come to Loves Park, Rockford, Beloit, wherever you're from. It's come to us. And throughout the book of Acts, we see this message coming again and again and again. They, they carried, Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in Him. They give all sorts of proofs for why He's the Messiah and how He's dead and raised again. But believe in Him and trust in Him and you will be forgiven of all your sins. You will be redeemed. There it is. A great message of the Gospel. And we could easily spend our time in the book of Acts looking at all these evangelistic sermons in Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 7, in Acts 10, in Acts 14, in Acts 17. They're all just filled with, with sermon after sermon. Jesus is the Messiah. Believe in Him. They all have the same feel that Jesus died for our sins and really raised from the dead conquering death. So repent and believe. So for the sake of time, we're just going to choose one. Acts chapter 10. I choose that one. So you can turn over there to Acts chapter 10. I choose this one because it's the first one that speaks about the Gentiles. It's got some uh, same themes that are coming up in, in all of these. It's, it's right there. Peter has been summoned divinely to come to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. Jesus, Peter would never have dwelt with the Gentiles in this way, but, but God called him to. That's the only way. And through this miraculous circumstances, opening his mouth in verse 34, Peter said this, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. And the word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And there you see, the, the redemption is a, is a reconciliation. It's a peace through Jesus Christ. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and the idea, I love this, how He's preaching. I mean, you guys know these things. I mean, you talk to people who saw it. And maybe some of you saw Him as well. You know what's true. And how God appointed him, anointed him. By the way, anointing him, the anointing is the word for Christos. 
the Christ. He, he anointed him. He, he made him Christ. He made him a Messiah. He was, the, he was the anointed Messiah. He anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how we went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And also, they put Him to death by hanging Him on the cross. And God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And He ordered us, here's Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify, this one has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. This, this Jesus is the Lord of the living and the dead, and He's the one that's going to ultimately judge. And of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. There's the message. Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One. He went about, healed the sick, healed those oppressed by the devil, but He's killed upon the cross in Jerusalem. The story doesn't end there because He was raised from the dead and everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. It's exactly what Jesus said. Go and preach repentance for forgiveness. Right? Repent, Turn from your sins and you'll be forgiven. That's the message of Jesus, the message of the Bible. And, and what we see here is, is typical of all the messages all the way through Acts. Jesus is the Messiah, so believe in Him. You know, there are different flavors to different audiences and different... It doesn't say the same thing every time. But I've got these concepts in the mind that Jesus is the one who's come to redeem. So believe and trust in that redemption. And that's the Gospel, right? It's what sets us free. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn there. Now we're going to start getting into the Apostles, into the, to the Epistles. I'm going to show you how, how Paul and the other writers of the Epistles just show the same thing. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the most important thing. The Gospel, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the very first primary importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. He's raised up on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. And appeared to more than 500. And then He appeared to James and to all the Apostles. And then He appeared to, to Paul. Jesus dying for our sins exactly like the Scriptures had prophesied and told and raising from the dead just as the Scriptures had foretold that we might be forgiven. And He appeared to all His people. That is the theme. And you can just go right through all the epistles. It's the, the message of redemption. It comes through Jesus. It's, it's, all, it's all there. In fact, even the, the, the message of redemption really is the message of forgiveness of sins. Because that's what we need to be redeemed from. We are, we are in debt because of our sin. We need to be bought back because of our sin. So turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We see this, these two things equated. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It says this, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. This isn't a positive. I think it should be the best way to translate this. Is, that is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. And what is that redemption? That means that we have forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness of our trespasses. How? According to the measure of the grace of God. Now, this, this whole message is told time and time and time and time and time again in the epistles. You don't need to go there just for the sake of time. I'm just going just gonna to start name, naming them and I'll quote them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There it is. Jesus became sin that we might become righteous. Our sins are forgiven because they're cast on Jesus by faith in Him. Romans 8.1 There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, the, the, the condemnation of the law doesn't exist. There's this umbrella over there that Jesus took our punishment for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs in a tree. He became a curse. The fall language. He, he became the curse for us. And the implication then is that we might know the blessing because He was cursed for us. Colossians 2.13 When you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. In Jesus, all our transgressions are forgiven. This is like great news. This is good news. This is what we believe. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of Paul and Peter. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. The people of Macedonia report about what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's wrath coming. The end of the age. God pours out His judgment upon those who wouldn't believe. But those who believe, Christ will rescue us from that wrath. He redeems us, saves us, delivers us, ransoms us. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. There it is. Jesus giving Himself as a ransom. Buying us, purchasing us, redeeming us. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus Himself gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession zealous for good deeds. Christ Jesus gave Himself to redeem us from our lawless deeds we've done. Forgiveness in Jesus. Faith and trust in Him. Or Hebrews 10. 10. 14 and 18. Hebrews 10.10 By this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been sanctified. That is, we have been made clean. We've been made holy by the offering of Jesus' body. And for by one offering, it says in Hebrews 10.14, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We are made perfect through this offering of Jesus by faith in Him. Hebrews 10.18 where there's forgiveness of these things, there no longer remains an offering for sin. It's not like we have to do anything else more. It is given to us in Jesus. It's the message of the New Testament. 1 John 1.9, the fighter verse. Several of us memorized that. Went over that again this week. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we just but confess our sins to the Lord, that, that's what repentance is. is turning from our sin, confessing our sins, saying, God, I hate my sin, and seeking to follow after the Lord, God then will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's just the testimony of the, of the New Testament. It talks about this message of redemption and forgiveness. And it all comes how? It all comes by His grace. Again, Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. That is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? According to the riches of His grace. You know, there is nothing in the fall that necessitated God having to come and clean up this mess. Well, He did say some things before the foundation of the world which had to be accomplished. But in and of itself, there's nothing inherent in the fall which makes Him come, but He comes only by His grace. He could have just left us alone. Just perish of the world. So you've done that. Well, have at it. But by His grace, He decreed that He would save us from our sins by sending His Son to redeem us. Matthew one twenty one. That's why Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Well, I promised we'd end in Revelation and we are going to get there. So turn over to Revelation. I want to bounce once in chapter 1 and then bounce forward to chapter 5. I really thought about uh, jumping to Revelation 20, but that's fading in next week. And next week we'll spend a lot of time in Revelation as it focuses upon the restoration. When Jesus comes back, wages war, conquers Satan, establishes a new world, when the new heavens and the new earth is where we are. But I thought that chapter 5 was for a game. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. We say John in verse 4. We've got, kind of, we got to back it up, rather, verse 5. We see John writing the seven churches in Asia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And then we get in verse 5. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ. He's always described. He describes the faithful witness. He describes the firstborn from the dead. That is, the, the one who leads all resurrections. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the dominant one. And then here's just praise that that comes to Jesus. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. That's what Jesus has done. He's released us from our sins. Our sins bound us in shackles. And in Jesus, 
Our sin no longer binds us. We are free and released in His blood. And making us to be a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. That's getting into restoration language there. But let's go to Revelation chapter 5. Here we see the central theme all throughout history is this crucifixion, death, ransoming blood of Jesus. I saw on the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book. This is God the Father. He's got a book written inside and out, sealed up with seven seals. Probably the title deed of the earth. The the sovereign of the earth, probably. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it because no one was powerful or had the credentials. Nobody was qualified to open this book. And then John says, I began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, hey, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And the lion, obviously there is Jesus. He came from the tribe of Judah, born in David's city. The root of David, I mean, that's who he is. He's overcome. He's lived this perfect life. He's died. He raised again. He can open the, the book. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders... A lamb standing as if slain. Picture there a lamb symbolizing Jesus. Slain. He's bloody all over. But He's alive. Having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And He came, Jesus did, and He took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Catch this out. They are worshiping Jesus. Worthy are you, King Jesus, this slain lamb, this lion from the tribe of Judah, to take the book and to break its seals. You are worthy to take this book and to open it up where no one else in the whole universe was. Why? Because you were slain. His death provided this authority. And secondly, you purchased... For God, purchase is redeemed. That's a language here. It's a, it's a purchase. It's a, it's a purchasing language. It's a transaction. You purchased for God, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus upon the cross bought an ethnic heaven. So that all nations and tribes and tongues would worship Him. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Now we're getting into restoration, but but notice here is that everything is really pointing to the crucifixion of Christ. That, That all is about Jesus, the slain One who forgives and purchases us and brings us up to God. You know, there is there is something to... To stories that when you get to the end of a story, everything in it is clear. And they say 20, 20, hindsight is twenty twenty. And just even here, we've got a, a hindsight a little bit about what took place in the life of Jesus. And we can only rejoice because we see clearer than the disciples did. But we see the whole story that, that God created the world, it fell, and now Jesus is redeemed. And next week we're going to talk about the restoration, about what heaven would be like about how everything will be restored, the new heavens and the earth. Focusing primarily on Revelation 20 and 20, 21 and 22 as it, as it talks about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and where things will ultimately be. But here is Jesus in the flow. I sought to preach Jesus to you. Believe in Him. It's my exhortation to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these words are rich. As we just even think about the whole story of the Bible, what a, what a treasure it is to think again on our blessed Redeemer. May, may, we, may our hearts resonate with Fanny Crosby. I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of a Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child, and forever I am. Oh God, may that fill our hearts as we think about the redemption accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Thank You, we love Him. 
May we serve Him. And I, I pray for those who don't know Him. God, may this be a day where they bow their knee to King Jesus. He provides the happiest life. God, maybe a, a life of difficulty and sorrow, but it's a, it's a blessed life. Maybe a life of persecution. Maybe a life of ridicule from other people, but it's the blessed life that we can anticipate the glory that's to come. It's way better than anything here upon the earth. So help us, O oh Lord, to see that. We pray even for our, next, our message next week as we think about how you're going to bring everything to completion. God, we don't think about that very much. I know I don't think about that very much. So stir my heart this week as we think about those things next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.